Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for tree, truth, meaning, and beauty. And I welcome all of you here this morning. I want to extend a special welcome to our visitors. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you'll join us for coffee and conversation in Housen Hall after the service. We come from a long tradition that sees a spark of the divine in every person. And it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to start our services by lighting a chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Please join me in saying our words for lighting the chalice. Love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning is entitled Visions by our own, <clears throat> our own Chris Jimerson. We gather to see more. Our individual perspectives expanded by placing them together in worship of that which is larger than us, but of which we are a part. We celebrate our differences, holding them up to us, the ble- holding them up to us the blessings we give to one another. We gather to know more, to feel more, to experience more than that which each of us may know, feel, and experience in solitude. We gather to sing. We gather to raise our spirits to higher elevations. We gather to gain a collective vision of love and justice fulfilled. We gather to worship together. Unitarian Universalists draw from all of the world's religious traditions, all of our wisdom resources. We have in our midst people who draw from Christian traditions, people who are non-theistic humanists, people who draw from paganism, and many, many other sources. And so sometimes with all these differing belief systems, we get asked, well, what holds you together? Well, one thing that holds this church together is our common purpose, our mission. We wrote it on our wall, and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading is entitled, Thinking Like a Mountain, by Aldo Leopold. A deep, chesty ball echoes from rimrock to rimrock, rolls down the mountain, and fades into the far blackness of the night. It is an outburst of wild, defiant sorrow and of contempt for all the adversities of the world. Every living thing, and perhaps many a dead one as well, pays heed to that call. To the deer, it is a reminder of the way of all flesh. To the pine, a forecast of midnight scuffles and of blood upon the snow. To the coyote, a promise of gleanings to come. To the cowman, a threat of red ink at the bank. To the hunter, a challenge of fang against bullet. Yet behind these obvious and immediate hopes and fears, there lies a deeper meaning, 
known only to the mountain itself. Only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. Now is the time in our service where we breathe together. Breathing together. Some of us pray. Some of us meditate. Some simply follow our breath to that place deeper inside. That place of greater vision, of greater wisdom. Breathing together, feeling one another's presence as we breathe together. We enter a time of silence together, remembering that the sounds of small children are a part of the sacred silence in this congregation. Breathing together, may we now enter that sacred silence together. In 1949, a little-known University of Wisconsin professor published what would become considered a masterpiece in the literature of environmentalism called a Sand County Almanac. Leo, uh, Aldo Leopold included in it a section that he called Thinking Like a Mountain, which opened with those haunting words describing the howling of wolves on a mountainside that Margaret read for us just a moment ago. In Thinking Like a Mountain, Leopold wrote about a shift in perspective he had experienced when, as a young man, he and a friend came upon an old wolf and her pack of full-grown pups while hunting deer. They opened fire on the wolf, striking down the old wolf while the rest of the pack escaped, one with a wounded leg. Here are Leopold's own words describing his shift in perspective. We reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then, and have known ever since, that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves would mean hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. He goes on then to describe how he witnessed mountainside after mountainside where hunters had killed off all the wolves thinking it would result in better deer hunting, or ranchers had killed off the wolves thinking to protect their herds, or both. Instead, Without the wolves, the deer and the cattle overpopulated, destroying the foliage of the mountainside, wreaking havoc with the ecosystem and causing much of the deer and cattle population to die of starvation. The wolves, though predators, had been a vital part of the ecosystem. In Leopold's metaphor, the mountain knew this. They were tall enough to have this broader view and old enough to take a longer view. That was the change in his perspective. He had gotten a glimpse of thinking like a mountain. 
And this stepping back to try to get that broader, longer-term view of our actions and their potential consequences is certainly vital to our struggle to prevent the most devastating consequences to our environment from global climate change and other risk from human activities. It is a crying shame, then, that our president and his top advisors are thinking apparently like a molehill when it comes to environmental policy. Their short-sightedness and greed for immediate gain are imperiling our future and the future of generations to come. It is but one area in which we must resist. But this trying, at least from time to time, to take a broader, longer-term view, this thinking like a mountain, I think it's important not just in how we approach our environment, but it is also an essential element of our overall personal, public, and spiritual and religious lives. In our personal lives, such a perspective shift can so often change the very course of our lives for the better. The examples are many. The person with a substance addiction that suddenly begins to see the pattern it's having in their lives and the negative effects it's having on those that they love, so they go out and they get help. The person that finally realizes that a career choice is causing misery in their lives and begins an investigation that results in a choice that is more life-fulfilling. An experience of interconnectedness in nature through meditation, religion, or other sources that leads to a shift in values from those centered around the self and individualism to values that are more centered on relationships and connection with other people and our world. Now these perspective shifts have happened to me many times in my own life. Once was when my grandmother was dying way too slowly from congestive heart failure. My mom had brought her to my mom's house and was taking care of her. My grandmother had been in and out of the hospital over and over again and had said she just never wanted to go back into a hospital again. Still, though, my grandmother seemed unhappy and maybe even miserable. She was often confused and would wake up in the middle of the night and walk around weakly in danger of falling, often only partially clothed. My mom was on the verge of emotional and physical collapse from all of this. I was calling mom often during that time, and one day she picked up the phone and I could tell that she had been crying. She said she was completely exhausted and had spent the whole day in bed except getting up a few times to go check on my grandmother. As we talked with one another, though, we began to see a larger perspective. We began to realize that we had been valuing length of life over quality of life. We saw that being in a place that was not her own, lacking in the familiar, was a part of the confusion and unhappiness my grandmother had been experiencing. We realized, we reached a broader understanding that this was not what my grandmother wanted. We stopped all but palliative treatment, brought in hospice to my grandmother's own house, and allowed her to live there in dignity for the rest of her lives. She was comfortable and even seemed happy in those last days. I visited with her several times, and though she was weak sometimes, she was once again in those last days the happy, loving person that she had been her whole life. 
I can honestly say it was the gentlest death I've ever experienced. And I'm so glad she didn't have to spend her last days unhappy and confused. I'm so glad we didn't rob her or ourselves of those peaceful, loving final days. Now, the mountain would have known all of this already, of course, but we had to climb it first to get that higher view. Life is like that sometimes, but if we can make the climb and think like a mountain, it can sometimes change our lives and the lives of those that we love for the better. Now, this is important, I think, in our public life also. Taking the time to step back and to try to gain a broader, longer-term perspective is more important now than ever as we attempt to live out our religious values in the public and political arena. Faced as we are with a barrage of distortions and outright lies, or what the Trump administration calls alternative facts, it can be easy to get bogged down arguing with one individual tweet or statement. With such an onslaught of executive orders and proposed legislation, we can fall into being overwhelmed by battle after battle and lose sight of the dangerous common ideological core that all of these proposals represent. The mountain, the mountain sees the falsehoods as the distractions and attempts to misdirect that they are intended to be. The mountain sees the rooms filled with men making decisions about women's health care and rights. The mountain sees the massive tax cuts for the wealthy that would be made possible by proposed legislation taking health care away from millions and millions of people, legislation that as of today has refused to die. The mountain sees profit being prioritized over sustaining life on our planet. The mountain sees an administration full of white people taking aim at the rights of immigrants and people of color. It sees anti-LGBTQ bigot after anti-LGBTQ bigot in positions of power at the highest levels of our government. The mountain sees these things and so much more. And because it has this broader view, the mountain understands that we are up against an ideology of patriarchy, white supremacy, and unbridled capitalist oligarchy, and that any of us that don't fit within that power structure are under threat if we refuse to stay in our proper place. Because of that, the mountain knows that we need one another more than ever before. Mountain sees that this is what we are up against, and we have to see it too if we're to have any hope of avoiding the fulfillment of such a dangerous, unjust ideology. But then, even once we see this, we also have to think like a mountain on how we might successfully resist it. Fortunately, social science researchers like Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stephan have done some of this wider, longer-range thinking for us by studying which social movements in the past decades have been the most successful. Here's what they found. One, that nonviolent resistance is always more effective than violence. And two, that the most disparate movements have been the most successful movements. Now, 
let's talk about what that means for a minute, and let me use this church as an example to illustrate it, because I know that sometimes we've wondered here in the church about this. Would we be better off to focus on just a few social issues and target them in order to concentrate limited resources, or would we better off with our folks working on a broad range of social justice issues as long as enough folks have enough energy around any one of them? Should we focus on tactics such as visiting, writing, and calling governmental officials, donating to the work that others are already doing, or should we get involved in more grassroots protests and rallies? Well, Chenoweth and Stefan's research makes very, very clear that we are more likely to have success the more disparate our efforts, both in terms of topics and tactics. So, for instance, our immigrant rights activism can inform and support our work for LGBTQ rights or women's productive rights and vice versa. Each of these can, when they need to, combine in their, and thereby amplify their efforts. Likewise, we need tactics that include both civil political engagement and protest in the streets. It is encouraging, then, that we are seeing exactly these disparate and wide-ranging efforts develop in our church and in our larger society these days. And here's something cool. Having these disparate social justice efforts can, in fact, help us to see more broadly, to think more like a mountain and thereby become even more effective at doing justice. They do so by engaging us with folks who may have a very different perspective than our own. Many of us who are progressive but a part of the dominant culture in our society tend to reach a stage of development regarding how we interact with other races, ethnicities, and cultures that is called minimization. And what this means is we can see and value the many similarities that exist among human beings, but... We sometimes can't see or perhaps even minimize the real differences that also exist among us. And this limits our perspective. It keeps us from ever being able to see past our own life experiences. Here's some examples. Those of us who are white can't know the life experience of people of color living within a white dominant culture. Straight folks can't know the life experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer people in a heteronormative society. Those of us who are male can't know what it's like to be a woman living within a system that is still patriarchal. Folks assigned a gender at birth that is congruent with how they see themselves can't know the life experiences of transgender folks in a system that vastly favors gender conformity which, by the way, supports the patriarchy and serves as at least part of the support structure upholding racism and other forms of oppression. Despite these and other differences, though, we can value the perspectives these experiences bring if we're willing to listen and to do the work. And we can start by interacting with and valuing equal the people and their perspectives whose life experiences are very different than our own. We start by refusing to give our own cultural perspective supremacy over another. By learning to value difference, we can widen our own worldview and thereby become much more effective in dismantling the racism and all those other forms of oppression I was just talking about. And by doing so, we enrich our own lives and the lives of those with whom we interact.
I want to close by talking a little bit about the spiritual and religious dimensions of this thinking like a mountain. Sometimes when we have that time for centering and breathing during our worship service or at other points during the service or when I've been out working for justice with some wonderful members of this church, I'll close my eyes and I'll have this deep experience of interconnectedness with this religious community that I serve and that I love and somehow through that interconnectedness with the sacred web of all existence of which we are a part. Within religious and spiritual contexts, these experiences may be called experiences of the holy, of transcendence, or of God and the divine. Some Buddhists and Hindus might call them nirvana, though they would ascribe different meanings to that. Humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow had a similar concept he called peak experiences, and other psychologists describe what they call flow experiences. Extreme sports enthusiasts will tell you that such altered mental states can be brought on by engaging in those extreme sports. Now, neurologists, psychologists, and others have begun studying these altered states of consciousness that I'm talking about more and more, and they're discovering what's going on within our brains and within our bodies physiologically when we have such experiences. They are also discovering that these ex- during these experiences, we are actually thinking in a different way. We're making connections we don't ordinarily understand. We are experiencing transformation within our very core values at a deep level. We are grasping our universe and our place within it in ways that are much broader than our normal day-to-day understanding. Now, because of all this research, organizations ranging from Google to the Navy SEALs have gotten interested in these altered states and are working on ways to help their people have such experiences more easily and more often because these experiences, these Wider, longer-term forms of mental processing seem to enhance creativity, increase productivity, and strengthen team cohesion. It seems that our deep spiritual experiences, however we may label them, are helping us to gain a more timeless perspective from a much higher elevation, so to speak. Perhaps this is one of the great purposes of church and religious community. Together, we help one another cultivate and move into these types of experiences. Together, we climb the mountain and our view, our perspective expands, and from that mountaintop, we glimpse the ancient truths the mountain has learned. We see a glimmer of the vista the mountain looks out upon. And knowing something of what the mountain knows together, we are better able to go out and change our lives and our world for the better. This is our great purpose together. We gather in community together. We go up to the mountaintop together so that we together are better able to nourish souls, transform lives and do justice. Please join me in saying our words by which we extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts 
until we are together again. As we go out into our world today, I wish you the blessing of that far-ranging vision of vistas of love and justice made real in your own lives and in our world. May the congregation say amen and blessed be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.